commercial is the heartbeat of the city. Without it, you don't have tax dollars. You don't have workers. You don't have reinvestment. You don't have people giving to charities, all that stuff. So people really need to think about that. Um, uh, that that's a direct message to whoever becomes the mayor or, or the governor or this or that, that this is what is, you know, small business and businesses and people investing in our city is what keeps it afloat. What's the five P's? Do you remember it? Proper preparation prevents poor performance. There you go. It doesn't matter how much money we get. If we don't close, it's no money, right? So right. no close is no money. I'm everything that I am because of my dad's death. And I wouldn't be as successful without his death. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Jason Theory. This is season two, episode three. We are sitting here with Michael Marks, Mike Marks, who it does commercial. Give us a little bit of a background on who you work for. And then on top of it, just to let know, to let people know how much of an expert you are, some people that you work with, huge companies and deals that you've done. Sure. Um, so I'm currently with Cushman and Wakefield. Um, I'm a co-leader of the Midwest uh, Retail Investment Sales or Capital Markets team. My primary focus has been in the urban uh, center. My business partner focuses more on the conventional um, grocery anchored, power anchored, lifestyle neighborhood center space. Um, and we... So when you say that, let's just, it's like a large anchor tenant and then like, you know, like a Grocery a Whole store. Foods or a Mario. And then the little guys that come off of all that. the small shop okay. space and the out parcels and whatnot. Yeah. And then um to kind of address the track record or experience question, just relative to my particular expertise, some of the deals that I've handled have been like the Esquire Theater on Oak Street, uh, or Nike Town on Michigan Avenue, um, the Jumpman store on State Street, uh, the Maple and Ash and Urban Outfitters um property on State. <clears throat> in the Gold Coast and a fair amount of stuff over in, in the in the high quality neighborhoods, the coveted corridors like Armitage and Damon and Southport, um, you know, Fulton Market. Um, so it's been it's been very exciting. I mean, I was not always doing that. I think I got into the business 20 years ago um, with a different firm. I started at Marcus and Millichap, uh, as a lot of people within the market did. It's a exceptional training ground, I think, in the commercial arena. And I was doing multifamily because that's sort of where the company had made its money. And as I was helping people exit those to the condo converters in the early 2000 craze, um, most of those folks were trading into commercial or retail assets. And I just was really drawn to the ability to read a lease and understand sort of access and um, upside and potential there more so than sort of touring a 40 unit building in the jungle jungle, uh, which was, you know, no shortage of, of excitement uh, around those, but it just was a little bit more, I just, I connected with sort of the analysis part of that and then really started to, to pivot into retail. And then um, to, right after the GFC switched firm. So it was at Marcus about 10 years, which is like 37 dog years in uh, commercial real estate. It's a highly competitive, very, um, you know, pretty aggressive sort of culture. And then um, was recruited by Cushman to sort of move up in weight class and, and step into more of an institutional investor segment, kind of middle market instead of Marcus, which I think has made most of its money over, you know, historically in the two to $20 million price point, we were like 20 to $120 million at Cushman. And so um, 
our thesis and theirs worked. It took a little took a little time to kind of uh, cultivate a different set of clientele and to demonstrate that we, you know, we're just transferring the same knowledge, even though we didn't have necessarily a, a long track record of hundred million dollar deals. But um, kind of came out of the gates with some really exciting uh, assignments and parlayed those into you know a, a pretty good. 10 years so far. I think I just celebrated my 10 year anniversary at Cushman recently, like two months ago. Yeah, congrats. Thanks. So residential, which is mostly um, emotional at your residential experience, which was more multi-units in that space up to 40 million, was it still a lack of emotion and mostly numbers-based or was there some emotion involved because it was residential just pretty much... emotionless number based. Mm, great question. I, I usually do share that with people when they kind of are like, so wait, you're, you know, a realtor. It's like the residential piece of it. It's two different things. So different. And yeah. I feel like that, that is the, the difference defining is the point is the yeah. emotion. So was there any emotion? No, I, not that I experienced. I mean, I think it was really about whether or not the, the analysis led to a path to profit. People could understand whether it was through a conversion or through pushing rents by making some, you know, upgrades or, um, there, there had to be like the evaluation of it from a number standpoint was really the driving force driving and debt played a big role in that. But, um, yeah, there people are detached emotionally. I mean, you can love a building or appreciate what someone, a developer had done or a particular lineup, or it can be your shopping center or your preferred, you know, kind of property within your lifestyle. But that only gets you so far at the end of the day, you know, it has to pencil. Otherwise, when you guys look at that and you look at the penciling in of stuff and you look at like where, where things make sense, do you ever take a look at, all right, it's, you know, Hey, you know, in 1998, you know, Bucktown should be getting an 11 or 12 cap or whatever it is, right. They should be making this much money. This deal is not going to make that much money, but we see where this is going to, to, do because I know from like up to 10 units when I shop with people that are not in your space, like much lower, we we mostly look for how the demographics are changing in that area and how maybe if it's not exactly the money we want to make now, we know that we're going to get a serious pop and let's grab at a lower price now and then go. So it's less money versus more less money like as it is now and more where that area is going, but you could be more flexible when you're 3 million and under. It's not like you're dealing with a massive amount of debt. Sure. But I think that that's a, that is really ultimately the, the types of approaches or like the, the distinction between different buyers is, are you a cash flow buyer? Are you a, you know, sort of an upside? Are you a redeveloper? Are you a land banker? Are you looking for the appreciation play? You you don't need. So you have those different. Absolutely. This is the discussion. So I did a podcast yesterday for people and I got invited to, and, and they asked me for my thoughts and I'm like, I'm like, man, I said, I don't really deal in a hundred or 200 or 300 units. I'm dealing in two to five units and mostly the debt service because people are, you know, it's not cash buyers. So most of them have debt. I'm like, I just tell people, you know, you're not going to make a ton of money month to month on rent because the rent's paying down the debt service. So you own the asset. It's what's happening in two, three, four years and what you can do to the building where I think that two to four unit buyer is, which may be different when you're 50 or 100 or 1,000 and you've got such a huge portfolio and that month to month rent is really what is 
which is turning. But that's interesting that even in your space, you're looking at that too. Yeah. I mean, I think the, it, the spotlight is on that at the moment in light of the way that the, the, migration has took place has taken place and the demographic shifts that we've so when you just go into that a little bit more in terms of just so people that are listening sure i think that um you know if you've seen any headline it's about sort of you know folks moving to the nashville's the you know south florida's the um carolinas like the the smile or the sunbelt whether it's you know going west to arizona there has been a a massive exodus from places like Chicago and places like New York. And that's not to say I'm not going to get, I don't get into like, you know, where, where Chicago stands is in terms of population growth. Cause those, some of those citizens have been replaced by other parties. So it's not like a, yeah, cause there's no vacancies, <laughs> right? It's not, but the caliber or the quality of folks that have left the, the Chicago to go finally to either some more sunshine or to a higher growth market, those places are experiencing significant rather growth, significant um, vacancy absorption. Uh, and when you're looking at those kind of major fundamental shifts in the way that the, the world is working and playing and, and, um, and living, it just, you, you want to make the combat on, okay. I, I think Nashville, you know, has had an enormous uh, surge in rents and everything has kind of gotten so crazy. And most people believe that there's still room for it to run. And whereas here we've sort of hit a, um, I think a, a little stagnant kind of moment in the market where there was great retail leasing absorption and great, you know, residential leasing absorption. I, I feel like, you know, the residential rents um, have peaked or at least, you know, started to, to, to not necessarily continue with the trend that they've had over the last three years. Um, and those are the markets where investors are willing to say, I don't necessarily need to get rich on the cash flow today. I, I, I want to put this on the shelf and be able to come back to it. Now, again, not every buyer has that mindset. I mean, some people, if you have a return driven strategy or you've got, you know, uh, if you're paying a dividend or you're returning some dollars to your investors, there might be some preferred equity that has to get paid. So you need, you know, yield in yeah. order to do that. You can't just tell them it's all going to come, you know, at the end of the rainbow, I promise. So it depends on what the, the, the investment vehicle is. If it's a family office or, you know, high net worth individuals and that, that operate and function very much like an institution, they are far more inclined to, you know, either be low leverage or no leverage and, look at the fact that 10 years from now, that market is going to be, you know, those rents are going to be double what they are today, or that asset from a compression of cap rates is going to be significantly more valuable than it is today. With the run up from, you know, the free money, the rent, the low interest rates, this and that, have you started to see, you know, obviously cap rates were being extremely compressed. Are you starting to see them open up again? Are you starting to see bigger returns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the risk adjustment that's taking place or has taken place as the liquidity in the debt markets has changed and as the perceived challenges or timeframes around creating value have, have extended, um, investors are insisting upon kind of more return for that patience. It doesn't feel like a, a scramble or a foot race. Everyone is sort of pausing. Um, and that is, I think, a direct result of, you know, I, I, I had read that I, this was fascinating. Do you know how many times the Fed has ever raised interest rates by 75 basis points in the last 50 years? I would say, I'm going to say maybe 
maybe during the dot com. Maybe. I mean, you're and you are like a student of that. Yeah, space. I'm trying to think of when I was on the floor because one I tr- time in 45 years they've raised interest rates by 75 base points. They raised them four times. When by was 75 that one base time? points you, last did they, year? Did they t- say when the time? I think was? it was like the you know 90s. Um, it's got to be like 99. Yeah, it's got to be when things were just on fire. It's so for them to have done it four times inside of a calendar year was unprecedented, and I think everybody was just. You know, you probably experienced it where people were like, let me buy something while money is still, you know, cheap, cheap. relatively. Yeah. And it was moving so quickly that I, I think people were still acting in an in an effort to beat whatever the, f- yeah, beat you know, the Fed. final result was. And then <laughs> there was a moment where all of a sudden everyone's like stopped and caught their breath. And they're like, wait a minute, why am I buying a, you know, five cap or a four and a half cap? This one, money is not, I can't borrow at the same rate. Two, like they're throwing the brakes on this thing. And some, I'm not sure exactly what the end result will be, but it's certainly not going to be what it's been. And so that forced yields to kind of blow out. And I think you watched it happen real time when you had a deal in the market and either your bid ask spread was, was significant and no one was willing to blink. The seller wasn't willing to take a lower price and sort of what it whatever they agreed with their investment committee to go to market at. And the buyers were not willing to step up in order to win a deal um, because they just felt like there was inherently more risk than anyone was pricing. So who's winning on your side? Because in the residential, the sell side's still winning. Yeah. It's still because just the absolute, and I don't know if you have this issue, but there's an absolute liquidity problem in residential, right? So it doesn't matter. I did a, I did a video, I want to say like last summer and they were like, talk when they started raising rates. And I was like, listen, I don't care how many, how much rates they raise. If there's a thousand buyers for 10 homes and they raise rates double, there's still going to be 50 buyers for 10 homes. If you can get rid of all the buyers, right? And you're still going to have this select few, but there's just no inventory. So on the residential end, I mean, I still have multiple offers. I still have over asking on everything. Nothing lasts more than six days. It's wild. Fucking nuts. Still like still. That's wild. Yeah. And it's just a straight, we have less than a month and a half of liquidity in the city of Chicago. And then you get into like Bucktown and you get into Southport Quarter and then you start looking for homes. Forget it. You're like maybe two homes. So you have like 40 people trying to get into Burley and there's two houses. It's like, so I don't know where, I don't know where commercial is on that, but it, but also you have 30 year paper, right? Commercial, you got to be like, okay, hold up. This is going to reset. Where are rates going to be? And then where's the bank going to evaluate? And is there going to be a capital call? And am I going to be screwed? Right. No, I mean, the your command of stock and velocity within your, you know, sort of sandbox is, it's it's quite different on the, you, I can, you know, list however many grocery and shopping centers there are in the greater Chicagoland area. But those are not like, they're not sort of on the market at any given time, or there's not like a clear inventory or list of buyers that exist yeah. for them. There's capital is constantly reforming and recycling around. Like somebody might leave a firm to start their own shop. They're a new buyer that hasn't shown up on, you know, bid sheets before or in comps. So, and you may not even be aware of them. Um, I would say that there is a massive chasm of the high quality assets that people want and that will, they will buy in any environment versus the tougher stuff. Garbage. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know one way to say it, I guess. Garbage. Yeah. I mean, that's what I say. I'm like, like, well, what, what houses are on the market? I'm like, just garbage. Yeah. And you know, and, and I don't, 
but are those prices falling to attract? Yeah, I think the, the, that's the what divide has, has At grown. At some point, you got to be like, drop, 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 drop. Oh, okay, I'll take the garbage. And even the good stuff, you know, if it's really chunky, like the bigger deals are just harder to do. There's just not as much of a willingness to put $100 million to work, especially, you know, in Chicago or Cook County for that matter. Yeah. Um, between, you know, crime and taxes, like people, as far as institutions go, have really kind of opened their eyes and raised their eyebrows to like, what is going on here? And is, are they going to get this under control? And so, you know, I think the, tw- the election the other day was, although the results are yet to be finalized, I think it's it was sort of a step in the right step direction. In right direction. Well, you have to hit rock bottom <laughs> before you can go off. We're doing an AA here. Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really is. Chicago was in an AA environment. It was bad. I mean, bad, uh, but yeah, I think that the the good stuff really is desirable. It's still, so yeah. like there's still, like, but they want more yield for it too. I mean, there, there's there's definitely. And when you said, is it an absolute you know seller's environment? We're, you know, it's almost like let's check back in a quarter or two because I'm coming off of the the fourth quarter, which is historically really strong. It was the worst fourth quarter we've had in I don't even know how many years. It was my worst fourth quarter in 15 years because everybody sort of was doing what I was mentioning earlier around like catching their breath and sort of assessing where things are and what they should be valued at. And then we also we all felt like once the calendar turned and everyone was talking about allocations refreshing and you know kind of uh, having a new horizon and a new um, mandate that didn't really happen. Cause I don't think anyone had any more clarity. There weren't very many data points to refer to in terms of where pricing trends had gone. So everybody was like, I think we're going to wait till the second quarter. And then yeah. like, I'm not going to be surprised if in the second quarter, they're like we're going to wait until the third quarter. Cause I, I, and then eventually they're going to have to put, they have dollars that they've got to put to work and they've got returns that they've got to pay or investors or, or they might have to give the money back and nobody likes to do that. So yeah, it was interesting. I went to, Sophia and I went to, um, they had, uh, your, your brother's company hosted it. Um, Sterling Bay, Sterling Bay had a thing on, on, uh, on, um, commercial, this and this, and they had the guy that owns like presidential towers. Like they had big guys up there. Water, Waterton. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was really, it was a two hour thing where like four people got up and just talked about what you're talking about. And it was interesting to hear them talk about money, finding different places, this and this, and you know, the one guy that runs Sterling. Andy? Yeah, the the, the junior, right? The son. The, the crown. Oh, that's Keating. Yeah. Keating was there. And he was like, I don't know these guys' names, but he's like, uh, he's like, listen, he's like, until they figure out politics and taxes here and realize that they can't just keep crushing commercial, he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. And it was interesting. They're like, and like, And he's like, and no one wants to take on no politician wants to take that challenge on. And at some point, someone has to take it on and be like, hey, we have to, you can't have all this outflow without inflow. And if you're talking about, you know, in the space that you're at, these are the people that actually keep the city afloat, in my opinion. I, I agree. It, it all Your starts space. with, you know, huge business, business. That, that, that employ people. So Thousands those jobs make all the difference in yeah. your tax base and allow for you to then start to talk about diversity inclusion start to talk about you know healthcare and schooling and start to talk about all that if you have no tax base if you have no you know to lose citadel and and a guy like ken griffin you know i think his civic contributions were you know they totaled up to like 700 million dollars or thereabouts i mean those are that's bruce wayne he's giving money to lightfoot to tell him to fuck off it's like dude are you insane yeah and it's not just him leaving 
it's the thousand gazillionaires that left with him that just spend all of his money under yes. yeah, the, those guys all are pretty well minted and are supporting different charitable organizations. Yes. And, and, um, it's, it's a, I mean, absolute, like, you know, I mean, travesty to lose folks like that and to lose and to have contention or acrimony with your mayor instead of, I mean, she reprimanded the CEO of McDonald's when he spoke at the Chicago economic club and like, he was talking about how Chicago was a city in crisis, and she was like, "He's you know detached from reality. He doesn't know what's going on." It's like, no, dude, do, like, you, do you not watch the news? <laughs> pick up the you, phone and call him. And be like, "How can I make sure that you are happy? You are a global brand that is critical to our mission in Chicago. I don't want you to think that we are." And here's know. my thing: I parked on Wrightwood because we're doing a project right by her house. If crime's not an issue, why do you have twelve police people in front of your house? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like it's like uh, it's like Fort Knox in front of her place. And whose brilliant idea was it to, when they're, you know, in order to establish, the, the, sorry, in order to establish a sense of safety, you put cop cars on every block on Michigan Avenue with their blue lights rolling. I don't know about you, but coming, you know, growing up, like if I saw a cop car with its lights on, I didn't be like, oh, it must be safe to walk over here. It's like, oh, some shit just went down. Yes. And, and that, you know, we've lost this, we've lost touch with sort of how we're going to be treating people you know, or, or re-inspiring people to come back to our shopping corridors and, um, and, and our tourists to come back to our hotels and workers to come back to the office. It's the easiest excuse or cop out to say, I don't feel safe, but I don't think that they're all, you know, blowing smoke. I think there's a legit sense of fear and, you know, the two greatest motivating factors in any decision is, you know, fear or desire. And if, if you are in a fear-based mindset, people are going to just sort of stay put or go elsewhere where they don't feel scared. And that's evident in the loop and on state street and on Michigan Avenue. Yeah. So what, what are the, what are your thoughts on how they can revitalize that? What can they do? They've talked about doing, you know, we talked before we started about doing some residential there. And then I've heard things that was actually at that conference where people are like, we've done, we've looked at the numbers. He looked at the numbers. He's like, I don't know how it works, how you retrofit, Something that's not bit build for residential doing, doing you know heating, cooling. This he's like it's like it's a massive undertaking. It is. It, I think it all comes down to basis, right? Anything can be reimagined or redeveloped at the right basis, depending on what you're buying it for or what kind of tax incentives or TIF you know increment financing is available to you. You can it can be done. Now, the bigger question, you know, when you look at it and say, should it be done? You know, is that really where we are at, where this entire, you know, block of inventory of, of old vintage office product should be taken out of circulation and put into residential? Um, I think there's a lot of questions or a lot of answers that are required in order to, to get to the point of, you know, should it be done and then can it be done or how much will it cost to do it? And I think that you know, when you're putting up these towers in order for these businesses to attract talent and to convince people to come to the, to the office and to contribute to a culture um, and to share and collaborate around a a conference table. um, That is, I think a really critical piece that I don't think anyone denies is a valuable, you know, uh, a value driver to like working in an office and you coming here and what, what kind of access you've got to your counterparts so that 
product type though is uninspiring. It's uninspired. It's old. It's functionally obsolete. You got low ceilings, you got bad window lines, you've got sort of tough floor plates. It's not sort of set up for, you know, the, the, the company of the future. And so who takes it, you know, they tend to be, um, value bargain hunters or, or value seekers. And then those people are like, well, we got this office space and it's in an old vintage building, but we can't get anyone to come to the office. So like the, if people res- resist or reject going at some point, those bargain hunters are going to be like, you can't give me the space for free, or I can't just pay cam and taxes. I can't get anybody to come here. Come here. And, um, and so as you've seen this migration into these class, a, you know, trophy towers, like most of those are, have done and are doing well. Um, and you know, it's all over the real deal and, and other trade rags about like the trouble that some of these big office owners in New York or in South Florida have, um, they, they want to keep pointing to the ones that are doing well in their portfolio. And those are the new, the new towers and the old ones are having these debt maturities and they can't, you know, they well, got what do you do with them? I mean, if you're going to repurpose them down, no, I, well, some of these here are, you know, landmarked. So you're, you're not going to tear them down. And I also think that like there has to be enough demand generation within the within the loop to have people want to live nearby whatever they're being drawn to the loop for. So if you lose Boeing and you lose Tyson and you lose some of these companies, you know, in the midst of telling everybody, you know, you got the biggest dick in the city, like you you <laughs> lose those, ever. yeah, uh, you lose those companies, and then you know you've got all this office product that's going vacant, and you're now wanting to convert it to residential. Well. Who's going to be your who's going to rentership? Work, yeah. Like, what's the what's the the demand that is that they're coming here for in order to prove out that you're not going to just build it and they will come? Like, I don't I don't think that's the solution either. I think it needs to be really thoughtful. And you know, I, right now between a lot of the amenities, the restaurants and the stores in the loop that have closed as a result of the lack of office and daytime population, like. There's like this whole it's cycling. A yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely you know a multivariable calculus equation that I didn't do so well in that class. So I know, but you said that very nicely. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> say that ten times. I'm gonna Probably leave it, not I'm leave it once. once. You hit that once. You practiced that on the way over here. <laughs> I, did I did not. Yeah, I mean, because you know, I will I will say that River North and downtown inventories and residential have really lowered. That's actually gotten good. We've gone from like 14 months to four. So there is a pullback. There are people are coming back. I do agree with you too. It's a great, um, a great pod with, um, oh, uh, Zuckerberg and um, who's the, the MMA guy? Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. And he literally brings that up. He's like, listen, the metaverse and Oculus and where we're going with this thing. He's like, it'll never replace the office. And he's like, and they have studies like where they study people's brains and what gets released. And when you're in front of somebody, the brain knows when it's not a 3d image, he's like, we can't replace that. He goes, we've done enough studies. It's a great, it's like a two hour podcast. Mm. It's really, really cool. And he talks about the fact that, yeah, it's like, you know, international travel may slow down because we can just pop up and do, you know, and, and you can be a hologram and we can have a hologram of like, you know, like the Avengers and have a hologram of like six people around talking about what they want to do. He's like, but in office, he's like, he's like, we at Facebook have people come in office because water cooler sitting down. He goes, that's when you really get collaboration done and people get attached to the space. Well, I, so I'm hoping that, you know, I'm hoping, but I, I do, I never thought about that, but, you got to feel that some of those spaces are uninspiring 
And then that's kind of why you have that split between like being in a new building on Wacker that's gorgeous, like the Deloitte or this or that, or being on Michigan Avenue with eight foot ceilings and no light and, you know, and shag carpet. <laughs> I think at this point, all the shag has been taken. Shag, shag, no, and we're social creatures. We want to be, I think, you know, relationship and community are kind of the two underlying things. So whether that, whether the, the, the connection is actually the piece of it that we want, no matter how much of an introvert you are, no matter how much of a recluse you are, like at, at a point in your life, like the connection or relationship or community that you are a part of or, or were a part of or seek to be a part of is what will drive your desire to be back in a space to be social again. I think we all got a chance to kind of take a breath, which is where and why the migration happened. You got all these people looking around me like, why am I living in this place? It's freezing. It's gray. They're crime like i'm gonna go someplace beautiful if i can work remotely why am i here and the the quality of life or caliber of you know my my experience has been diminished so i'm gonna go elsewhere and then i think they get there and they realize i don't have any friends <laughs> um and they're starting anew. and i think when you get taken out of your comfort zone you sort of are challenged to do more with you know and, and meet people and try something different instead of being so complacent and and comfortable so i i think we're we're kind of at that point where I don't think we're ever going back to what we were because I think everyone got perspective on on what it was like to eat breakfast with their kids. So we're fifty two to fifty three percent back full time. What do you think that number goes to? Seventy. I think enough people get fired at home, they start freaking out. Oh, of course, it's very different when you're in a tight labor market. The fact that they're laying off ten thousand people at a oh, time, yeah. and some you're going to have people that are hungry to get a people job, come, and they're going to be like, "Fine, I'll work. I'll go to the office. I'll go to the office." Like, people come to open houses, and they're like, "Oh, they're like, they're you know, I'm just sitting like, how you're doing, blah blah blah." And they're like, they're like, "Oh, um, uh, well, you know, we're we're going to buy something, but a friend of mine got fired, or this person, so we're kind of nervous." And I literally say to them, "I go, do you work from home, and you make over a hundred grand." <laughs> they're like. We, yeah, we work from home. They don't tell me their, their numbers. I go, you work from home and you make over hundred grand. You're a 50, 50 shot. You're going to be gone next week. Yeah. I'm like, get you. The manager's got to see you. They're not going to fire people. They like, no, I mean, I think two years ago, Zell was interviewed and he's like, it, this all, it's all, it all ends when you are zooming to a pitch and some young guy who's or girl who's hungry and ready for, you know, to take a step forward in the career gets on a plane and goes and meets with the yeah. client and sits in front of them and pitches and wins the business. You're going to start traveling again. You're going to go back to the office. Like it, it is coming. about, you know, it's the coming. fear of loss and where you. I've lost three deals from people getting fired from like Salesforce or this or that. And like when the agents call me, I literally say to them, did they work from home and make over 150 grand? Everyone was like, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, dude, come on, man. You know, yeah. you're working 10 hours a week. You're going to get canned. They, they know what you're working. They know keystrokes. They monitor all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so that goes into my next thing. Um, being a social beast, being social and having this and that. I know it's not as much in residential, but what is this like for people that are thinking about commercial? What is the social life? I mean, I know it's such a relationship driven business. When you were getting your chops and going up, how many nights a week were you out? Don't lie. <laughs> I mean, and what I, was your I average bedtime? A little bit off the, uh, what know, was your average bedtime? I skew the numbers because I was out, you know, all the time. 
Yeah, um, but you have to be. Yeah. It's that business is so like people are always like, why don't you get a commercial? I'm like, dude, I, I'm married with kids. Like I'll be divorced in a week. I mean, you're out all the time. Yeah. Because as you have folks, it's very different. One, I, like, yeah. I can't remember the last time I drove somebody to a showing. Like oh. it, you meet them at a property or they're in, they fly in from New York or from London or from whatever, the West Coast, and you've got them for, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours. They're meeting with, lenders they're meeting with leasing brokers they're meeting with other people so like you'll get a, a block of their time and you want to make it highly productive and, and if they're overnight they're gonna have you're gonna have dinner you're yeah. gonna hang out so or- you might tour them you know meet them in a building show them a couple assets and then they're gonna go do three other things and then you're gonna meet again for dinner and you know people do business with people they like i mean you're, you either have to be the absolute best and only game in town like if, if you want to dominate a market and like you don't have to be social because you're you have an 80 percent market share like that's a different story you can kind of uh, but in a hyper competitive are there people like that you don't have to say names but it, it chicago can't be like that it, per, perhaps in a particular discipline you know um but not in my space there's nobody that has that yeah. kind of you know dominance and market share uh you know and people do business with people they like and how do they grow to like you like you either you earn their respect and trust on your mastery of the information and and you're i think your position on where, what markets and, you know, what tenants and um, what assets are ones they should be looking at. And then after that, you kind of, you know, div- you you evolve it into a little bit more of a th- third dimension of like, what is that person like at home? Or like, can I enjoy talking to this guy? And so there's, you know, I sold Tau and RH uh, last year. We had launched them. Congrats. Thank huge, you. huge spots. Those were big big deals uh, to do in a post COVID era. And we launched them pre COVID had them both sold. And then literally like they were under contract in February of 20. And by April of 20, they were, you know, falling apart at the seams and everything was closed and the city was shut down. And so these were like, uh, I don't think these are goodbyes anymore. I don't don't know what's happening. A deal like RH from conception to close. How long is that? Well, I mean, that's, if you two, three years as a result of COVID, it was, yeah, for sure. But I mean, and a normal environment, um, I would say eight months, six months. months. Yeah. Those are eight plus buildings. Yeah. But my point was that is a guy after, after selling one deal and then doing a closing dinner or touring them when they were in the market and like having some dinner or having drinks or having lunch or having coffee or being at different, um, you know, things together, we became, you know, much more friendly than we were, you know, before. And he's going to remember you. And then he bought a second deal for me. And now, you know, we just, uh, we're, we're, we're launching the signature room, which is the 95th and 96th floor of the John Hancock. Um, so like a revamp or no, it's a, it, they have a long-term lease. I mean, they were absolutely crushing it for a very long time. They suffered as a result of, of the pandemic, like most restaurant F and B operations, um, but have been sort of climbing back out of that with, you know, ever increasing sales. And so those are, that will be a s- similar deal. I mean, it's, it's unique space, much like Tao is. I yeah. mean, that was like Excalibur, Limelight, ca- Castle. I mean, that thing has been a, you know, a what was staple the bar? In the what was the club. bar to the side? Um, so it was, it was Limelight, but Excalibur, but there was a, like, yeah, a- it starts with an R, I think. Um, there was castle because that was kind of the like that was the bridge and tunnel people in the other building, and then us cool people went to the small one. Oh my god, what was it called? 
I missed like 20 years ago, if not yeah, more. Yeah. Um, it has to be more because I've known Nikki for 20 and it was way before her. Yeah. I mean, that thing was, it has been. Just pumping. Like a cornerstone. Is, is Taup still, is it packed? Well, I haven't gone no, recently, I know. but yeah, I mean, they were, when we sold the deal in the middle of last year, they were at like 92% of where they were pre-COVID. And oh, in pre-COVID, they were like on track to do a 30, $30 million of sales in a year, which is uh, immediately put them at the top of the pile in terms of Chicago uh, productivity. Awesome. So they, you know, I think the- Are those people nervous about what's going on politically and stuff like that? Who the owners or yeah, the operators? Yeah, like the operator, like the owners of, of, of big stuff like that. Like, do they? Are yeah, they like- but I mean, I think that at the end of the day, people want to blow off steam. And I think that that demographic too, like the, the, when, who we were and where we were in our lives when we were going to, you know, limelight or, or whatever, yeah. it, that's, if, if that was open during the pandemic, it would have been packed every night. Like those, they didn't, they were 25 yeah. years old. They didn't, care like yeah look at anywhere else in the country florida i mean people were raging if they could yeah. um and here we're like that's why the governor sent his family there <laughs> so they could rage on his private plane get me a troll on this thing while we while we were on lockdown <laughs> while we were on lockdown no comment <laughs> everybody don't leave your house guys get the hell out of here <laughs> go live your life i know it's real <laughs> anyways <laughs> Really challenging my diplomacy. <laughs> That's okay. You don't have to comment. I'll do the comments. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So that that's like like I mean, you're so intertwined with that upper echelon. It's just interesting, especially you know, I, you did a lot with Starbucks too, right? Back in there, am I losing or it was just that one place? I mean, we sold a half a dozen or you know eight. Uh, the Esquire and all that. Were you working with DRW? Were you working with Drew? Um, so DRW's sort of a real estate arm is called convexity. Okay. So that's all that. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure who drew is, but, um, that's Donnie. That's the owner. Oh, (laughs) sorry. That was his badge on the floor. Oh, I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. There was not a drew there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Don has a, a a very, very skilled, knowledgeable team. And, is involved in those in those decisions, but like he has a real some real estate expertise in there that I, you know second. Is none. he like the biggest now? Like if you were oh, talking what? about uh, like, traders, or? no, not trader. He's he was single handedly the biggest trader in the world for a while. I'm, I don't know. If I've been detached from that, so I don't know anymore. But in terms of real estate, like a single guy, is he is he the, is he the big guy? Is he mm, like a no? I mean, I think ultimately at his core, he's a trader. So I think he made brilliant trades. They made yeah, brilliant he, trades and bought in when well, man, he, he was making thirty to fifty million dollars a year in 08, 09, when everyone else was dying. They were like it was like a cash register over there. Not just him, all of them. And then yeah. they just turned around and like anyone would do, let me get out of this and get hard assets when they're cheap. Yeah, and so he did that. And then I heard he owned since, Roby. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, a lot of those, they, they, they exited a lot of the stuff, at least that they have here. Um, and you know, as far as whatever the balance of his real estate portfolio looks like, I, I don't, I don't have, yeah, no, no, visibility just, to, but no, I mean, I think that he's, someone brought me up that he owned the Roby and I'm like in the back of my, and I, and I haven't thought of him in 10 years. And I was like, man, that motherfucker owns everything. And I think he owns most of Oak. I think he bought that during, unless he flipped it, but I think that was the Esquire. No, oh, okay. That was what, um, yeah, and I now we we sold it to Amancio Ortega, the the um, the guy who started Zara, okay, or in, Incotech. So you know, one of the richest men in the world. He owns some of the, I think, 
most premier assets on the planet. Whether yeah, it's I, something there, I was watching Rodeo like Drive. you know like a, a one of the stupid stuff that comes on your phone. It's like we're just people, and I saw owner of Zara. I'm like, oh okay, they're selling a lot of clothes, yeah. but it's always real estate. It's he, always he also real owns estate. the pedestal that the peninsula is on, like so where Tiffany's and um, Ralph Lauren and. You know, uh, I think it was Victoria's Secret and Banana Republic, but those have been. So he's got those two, I you know, trophy assets in Chicago and a ton of stuff in in Florida, a ton of stuff in New York, a ton of stuff in L.A. In all of the you know Newberry Street and then Bond Street in London. And See, it's got to open up a business with cheap clothes, and the sky's the limit. Yeah, I mean, the the there's a lot. Those guys, whether it was Topshop or Uniqlo or yeah. You know, um, Primark. I mean, the, the fast fashion folks. Where do you see that? I mean, obviously this guy's investing a ton of money. Where do you see, can, you know, where do you see retail going? I mean, I still go into stores, but I'm also almost 50. So I'm a dinosaur. I mean, so like, do you see a swing back to getting in and, and touching stuff? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a dinosaur Because Best Buy too, was but- doing great. Until, I mean, I'm sure they're, I don't know where they are now. Cause I haven't looked, but I remember like retail, you, you even told me was like, was like really on the up. Yeah, I think that, you know, all of the stuff pre-pandemic was like the retail apocalypse and, and all the store closures. I, it was so overblown because, and I think it was misattributed uh, to the, now look, consumption has changed. Like e-commerce and online sales have, have changed the way people shop. But ultimately, a lot of those bankruptcies and a lot of what the apocalypse was sort of, you know, uh, atta- was mis incorrectly attached to were these bankruptcies and these closures. Those things should have, those were brands that sucked and should have been dead a long ass time ago. They, they were burdened with a bunch of debt during the LBO era and had been like limping along. Is there a place in the world for Toys R Us to exist? I think so, but they were, their balance sheet was so riddled with debt from corporate raiders buying and trading and doing stuff and borrowing against it um, that they just couldn't sustain in an environment where they, their debt service, you know, was, um, suffocating. And I so love Toys R Us. I do too. Kids all the time. The uh, you know, and a great, great jingle. I mean, that shit's yeah. still very fresh in yeah. my mind. And, but so I think that the store is absolutely back. The consumer, one, Amazon f- messed with everybody's paradigm. They basically made you think that if you, you know, bought seven pairs of shoes and returned six of them, um, and it was easy that like it was also profitable. Not so much, you know, and so that's a pain in the ass. Well, but people do it regularly. Oh, yeah. And I think like you're I'm starting married. to see it in terms of if you return it to the UPS store, or you return it to a Kohl's, it's free. Or if you have to do this, yeah, you got to. Nikki returns everything to Kohl's. And um, then she's at Kohl's and she's buying shit. That's why Kohl's invited Smart. her, you know, and gave Smart. Them. But the store. So one, as omni-channel, as that word and that concept sort of blossomed, people realized we, the, it was becoming more and more expensive to acquire customers online. So if you were an Instagram or a online store to be able to do the, the customer acquisition experience where you're marketing or paying for SEOs and stuff, it became cost prohibitive. So they were like realizing one, if we want to acquire new customers or we want to give customers a place to at least experience what this brand is three dimensionally, touch and feel, try on the size, make sure that it's, it's, you know, what it all is and give them an experience that helps, you know, present ourselves beyond the, the screen, we need a store. And so that's why you've started to see Armitage has become, I think like a really great bellwether of the digitally native brands that have come back into, you know, the, the idea of 
we need a store. Everyone thought everyone's just going to go online. What we also saw that was fascinating to me is that as some of these retailers would close stores that weren't doing well, um, their online sales, their e-commerce within that region dropped precipitously because they became wow. out of sight, out of That's mind. And people became like, ah, if, if, you know, this Marshall field or whatever Macy's closed in, in our market, um, they're not moving any product from people buying online there. And suddenly whoever had opened the store was actually seeing a pretty big lift. And so I think that you absolutely, the store is imperative. I don't think stores need to be as big as they were. I don't necessarily know if you, if it makes sense to carry the inventory that was once carried in the physical store. I think RH was the absolute trailblazer in that space where it was like, we're just going to build a sick ass showroom you come and experience Eat, our products relax. and then we'll, you know, fill out the iPad with your order and it will get shipped directly to you from our warehouse where they're paying the that- a fraction of the rent that they're paying. So they're really monetizing every inch of that store rather than having back of house where you're paying the same, you know, rent obligation to store shit. No, store shit in Bensonville and ship it, you know, for, for $5 a foot versus $55 a foot in the Gold Coast, you know, so or, or more. Um, so I think that that is part of why the store is changing too and why you're seeing so much demand. I mean, there's not enough space on Armitage or Southport for the amount of tenants that want to be there. Uh, I know. love Southport Quarter. Yeah. That's really interesting. Why did the Amazon store close? We're going to end on that. Like, so Amazon tried to get into this walk-in, pay, blah, blah, blah. We used to, the. I mean, I just must be an ass because all the stores we went to close. I went to all Amazon bookstore all the time because my kids love going there and they liked seeing the book versus buying it. You think Amazon has enough money that sign itself has got to be great for them. And and we talked about Toys R Us, but Amazon. Well, I want to just piggyback off something you said. You, you are an ass. Yes. So, um, <laughs> and then why, why Amazon closed? Boy, to end on this, like we could have started on this and given the entire podcast. Amazon is ceasing they you know they open all these grocery stores yeah 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 so amazon they're closing they're 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 pausing that like i think one they have enough money to get into every game that feels like it could be lucrative and figure it out and they're smart enough where they you know have figured out a lot they did not figure that out and i think that grocery is the same way like and and i watch i i saw a guy speak at a conference that i attended last year and he was saying some shit that people were like felt was super controversial and he, he was prescient and he said, he's like, I guarantee you they're going to close all the grocery stores and they're closing all these things. He goes, cause Amazon in, in and of itself doesn't understand why someone is going to the store. They know based on your shopping patterns, they can put stuff in front of you. They can know that you're almost going to be out of milk or you're almost, you know, time for new coffee order or whatever. But people go there as a point of convenience, the behavior driver for someone going to Amazon is that they don't have to go to the store, but why you are, why you want a particular product has been, was never part of their game. Like the brilliant retailers are, are merchandisers like Fred Siegel in LA or the Nordstrom or, you know, um, Barney's for that matter. Like they were curating a store and a collection of whatever fashion or lifestyle products and people would go there because they wanted to see what the hot new product was or what was cool to do a four star store. I mean, I don't know about you or a bookstore. Like they just, they put a bunch of stuff in a store that was like four star rated. But like, to me, is that a gift shop? Like, why am I going into a four star store? It was a gift shop. Um, 
And I mean, that's what I thought the place on Southport was. So like my kids, when they did something, they were like, oh, well, let's go to the Amazon place and you can pick out a book. Yeah. I mean, I think that, but Barnes and Noble, so Amazon knew what SKUs were selling off their e-commerce. And so they filled and they knew like, oh, this neighborhood is really about self-help and about, you know. So that's what was but, in there. So that was in there. But I think that, um, you know, why they do, they, they're, they got into a lot of games and are getting out of a lot of games. They've built an incredibly in, expensive infrastructure uh, for logistics. That's why you've seen them. I mean, they single-handedly changed the flow of industrial or the distribution fulfillment market, which has been white hot for yeah. 10 plus years. Um, the, the, the people that do what I do at Cushman and, and all the other big firms have made fortunes over the last decade on just the industrial segment. And as a result of these 900,000 foot leases that Amazon yeah. signing. And the moment they were like, I think we might have enough space or perhaps too much. We're going to not, you know, fulfill this lease obligation. Like that sent shockwaves through the system. Yeah. And you started oh. to see everybody pull back and go, well, wait a minute. If Amazon's Amazon, slowing down. Yeah. Um, so I think that they're in a moment where they're retooling and figuring out who they want to be, what value, you know, proposition they really offer beyond just the convenience of, I don't want to go to the store and park and go in and get all the shit so we can show up at my door. That will never lose its hit or hook. Like people, if you're busy and you don't want to go to the store, but there's stuff, other stuff that I want to try on. I want to touch it, feel it, see it, yeah. you know, or I've done all of my research and now I'm going to go there and see if, you know, I can get it and they can deliver it to my, my place for free. Um, and, you know, they, they are, Pretty, I mean, the whole Whole Foods acquisition, there are so many interesting things that they've done um, that as a student of the business and industry, I love reading about and trying to kind of more clearly understand why they closed Southport. I don't know the answer exactly, um, but I think like there was a lot of money being bled out of their their uh, revenue stream as a result of these new concepts little, that they opened. Things. All right. And then so our last thing. So this will be the last one. Because we are going over an hour. My longest guest ever. Um, so you should feel privileged. Uh, the last thing is, um, does Nordstrom's on Michigan Avenue survive? Do they make it? Do they stay? And if that's a yes, what big retailer do you think is in the most trouble when you look at your space? And it can be somebody you don't do business with, so you don't have to say nasty things about anybody. Mm. But there's a, there's a lot of... There's a lot of talk about Nordstrom's. Um, about that particular yeah. Nordstrom? About uh, them as a company? Th them as a company. Mm. And that's a lot of retail space. Yeah. So that was one of the most productive stores in the country for them. It, it, and is it still? Uh, I don't, I haven't seen sales reports on it recently. That mall, that asset, you know, like Mace Rich, I don't know, that was a big headline a year ago. They, they sold it at a fraction of what they were into it for. I mean, look, I think vertical malls are are really tough, especially. Okay, this is vertical know, malls tough. Yeah, like, but 900 has sort of been proving that theory wrong. I think Northbridge, 900 is where Bloomingdale's yes. is in like the uh, Four Seasons. Um, you know, but they took the Bloomingdale's home store and moved in there. And so they've created a real, I think, a compelling experience for people to go in and up. Um the Nordstrom, you know, the the Northbridge Mall has lacked any real identity, sort of in the in the front half of that. You know, you kind of enter from Michigan Avenue and you walk up one 
you know, the, the pedestrian traffic or the caliber quality of pedestrian traffic, the amount of tourism that used to kind of have the day to go shop is different. Uh, I don't know if that store closes. I, I, I think like, you know, there would have to be a very compelling and there, there are spaces available, right? The, the water tower is totally empty. There's all sorts of stuff on the east side of Michigan Avenue they could move to. Um, but they just did that whole, you know, sort of right refit and, you know, brightened it up and created that bar restaurant in the, in the middle of the men's floor. Uh, I think the bigger, I, I don't know, I would be really surprised if that store closed as a result of just how great of a retailer Nordstrom okay. is. Who do you think is in the most trouble in the mm. retail sector? I I think all of the tenants that sit in the middle of the continuum, like I think the discount, people are discount oriented and, you know, value or sale oriented. Um, that never changes. And I think if you're luxury or designer oriented, you are not going to accept this or, or this, like you might still buy one of your designers on yeah. sale, but like the stuff in the middle that lacks an identity, I mean, the, the gap. So it's not like a the, Burlington Coat Factory and it's not a Chanel. It's like in the middle. Right. It's the Banana Republic or the J. Yeah, I mean, J. Crew's kind of reinvented itself. Banana's been trying to. Gap is trying to. I mean, Abercrombie, stuff like that. Yeah. It's just like the ones where it's like, who's who's, who's that consumer? It? I okay. don't know who that consumer is anymore. Um, you know, and, and so those people in the middle that are like, you're not quite cheap enough and you're not so fancy that everyone's going to be like, Oh, you got the new, whatever. Like it's sort of, you know, very unremarkable okay. clothing. That was kind of a non-committal answer, but I'll take that from you. Well, I got business. I got to do with <laughs> people. I don't, I don't want to offend anybody that's got a center with that tenant in it, or that I don't need the real estate. Get out. You'd be like, Hey, uh, I, I know you're shocked that I was watching Jason Theory, but I was. And what you said <laughs> about our company, I take great offense to. Um, all right, cool. I really appreciate uh, your time. It was super interesting. Um, everyone always asks me about commercials, so it was very, very cool. And it is commercial is the heartbeat of the city. Without it, you don't have tax dollars. You don't have workers. You don't have reinvestment. You don't have people giving to charities, all that stuff. So people really need to think about that. Um uh, that, that's a direct message to whoever becomes the mayor or, or the governor or this or that, that this is what is, you know, small business and businesses and people investing in our city is what keeps it afloat and creates all the other opportunities and some of the redistribution. So, um, dude, thanks. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you. We've known each other for how long now? It's been a minute. 30 some years. 30 some years. Yeah. A little different than, you know, Greek camp. Yeah. Fanati. Uh, <laughs> All right. Thanks. Uh, you can check us out, obviously, on iTunes, um, Amazon, uh, on our website, clopastratton.com, on our podcast section there. And uh, and and all the best in, uh, in March to everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Jason.